Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, lost deduction complications. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act introduced new rules limiting excess business loss deductions. We covered some of the basics of this provision on the November 1st episode. Our discussion this week is how these new rules interact with other provisions to create a complicated situation for taxpayers and their advisors. Joining us by phone is Richard Jocelyn, a consultant to the alternative investment firm Entrust Permal. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. How are you? Uh, so why don't we start with an overview of the excess business loss limitation rules passed under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? Sure. It's 461L, which is a small little part of the code, and so it doesn't have much length to it, but it's quite broad in that it seeks to basically delay the use of losses by putting a cap for non-corporate taxpayers on their business losses. So in a simple way of looking at it, it says if your losses exceed a threshold, you can't take that loss currently and you must carry it forward. And the mechanism of which to carry forward is an NOL, not like an excess passive loss carryover, excess capital loss carryover. It's an NOL. And why is that important? Because the law also changed how NOLs are utilized and specifically only 80 percent of taxable income can be used by NOL. So the excess business loss rule is in effect a conversion to NOL status for business losses that exceeded a fixed threshold. All right. So what sort of taxpayers are affected by this change in the law? The the rule is specifically for non-corporate taxpayers. So the principal persons who are affected are individuals and trusts, and it can also be some tax organizations that are such as trusts as well, but primarily individuals and trusts. And what's the idea behind this? Uh, So you're you're taking excess business loss deductions and you're converting them to to NOLs. What does that really mean from a policy perspective? Why do it? So it's it's interesting because in the last tax reform back in 86, they put in the passive loss rule which put in a, a threshold of saying, hey, you can't take your losses unless you know, don't engage in activity on a material basis. So this next hurdle that they've created is a new plateau. It says, okay, even if you've disposed of your, your business, that, that hurdle now, we have a new hurdle. The hurdle is if it exceeds two hundred dollars or $500,000, depending if you're married, filing joint, or if you're, you're not, the new hurdle is that if your loss exceeds that, you can't take it. You, you must convert it to an NOL and subject yourself to the NOL rules. So in effect, they've added an additional hurdle, and it's after all other deductions are calculated, after all your at-risk limitations and after all your passive loss limitations. Once that's all done, this new limitation kicks in. So I think the purpose is to simply say, hey, if your loss is too large, we need you to convert it to an NOL and take it over a period of time. So clearly, if a person has high tax polygamy, year, eventually they'll get these losses. So the operation seems to be simply a delay, maybe a year, maybe two. And what's really, really important that came out in the blue book that kind of makes these rules less impactful is that any excess loss that can't be taken due to the cap this year is not subject to the same rules next year. So if my loss is over 500000 that excess loss is no longer limited by these rules. And next year, I get that full loss as NOL, subject to 80% of my taxable income. So that's a huge 
give back, if you will, because you would think that if the loss is capped every year, it needs 500000 and stop. But what's going to happen is in 2018, people have a fixed business loss, but next year they'll have that whatever loss converts to NOL could be fully allowed. And only the next year's loss, the next year, the losses generated next year in 2019, that will be capped. So in effect, only one year that should have a fixed cap. The next year you'll have an NOL plus a fixed cap. And so it seems to me that the impact obviously is, is bad for 18, but if it will be allowed eventually and through an NOL operation. If the taxpayer never has income, then that's a different story, but NOLs don't expire either. So there will be a day in time. And so it seems to me the budget, you know, the, the revenue estimates for this, and if you look at these numbers, it's $150 billion, which is you know, nearly what they estimate for other revenue raising provisions like the excess business interest rules. You know, it's hard to see how much revenue can actually be if the losses are simply delayed through NOL. Is there a reason for this one-year delay, or was it possibly a drafting error that they were trying for more substantial restriction and ended up just making a one-year delay? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, the, the Blue Book came out recently and made this clarification. So it seems like the government was knowledgeable about it, and, that, and the Blue Book you know, obviously came out after the law was enacted. I mean, there are you know regulations that are being drafted or some guidance um, on the OMB agenda. But I think the biggest quirk has been you know within the service themselves in that they came out in December and said, hey, wages are, are to be considered business income, which would be a huge way that would obviously reduce the business loss if you could use your wages as income. And so we have the blue book saying to the contrary. So we have mixed guidance on what exactly is the status of wages. Is it a business, not a business? So it is to be determined. But if they do put wages in, then obviously these rules will have less impact because more income would be business income that could offset these losses. And I don't think they're going to change back from the blue book to say that next year's carryover in a well is subject to the same rules. I'd be hard to understand and how they could do that. Is it possible that this could wind up in a technical corrections bill or uh, future guidance that might change the way that it looks now? Yeah, it, certainly how they define business will be interesting just in, in guidance. I mean, in the current form that people are preparing their taxes, um, wages are there. So people you know, could conceivably be following the IRS's guidance and using wages as business income. But yeah, I, the area that where this loss limitation rule comes into play is actually in other regulations where the other regulations have already come out and they say, hey, we can't even think about how we're going to apply 461L to our section. So we're going to reserve regulations on this and you know send us your comments because we'd like to hear how you think we should be applying business loss rules to you know, the excess business interest rules and you know there's even within the guidance for the you know, section 199a qualified business income there is a provision having to do with 461l and that and the reason why they have it in their guidance is because the, the original congressional explanation the law they mentioned it they said you know we're thoughtful about these two rules working together so I think the upshot is that guidance will finally come out that hopefully will interpret not only what a business is and how they interpreted what the carrier will be, but also how these rules might impact other sections. You know, in my article, I kind of want to go through how these losses actually calculated because nowhere in these statutes does it really have a sequencing order. And there's bits and pieces of where there's guidance of how things should be you know, sequenced. And you know, particularly this section, it has in the congressional guidance that the passive law 
loss rules take place first, and then the excess business loss rules take place after that. So that's like the, the only real guidance we have in terms of sequence. But it's important because it shows that the logic of the statute is, is figure out everything else, and then once all else is done, then apply this rule. And that means the basis limitations, that means the at-risk limitations, that means the passive loss limitations. After all those limitations are in place, then we do the last limitation. Let's turn then to, uh, you mentioned the Section 199A pass-through deduction. How does that deduction uh, work with this limitation? So in this section, you know, we're looking to get a very large business income so we can take a 20% deduction. So to the extent that we have losses limited, it's a good thing for this computation. That means that our business income will be higher and our deduction will be greater. So the interplay of 61L comes in in various ways. One way is how this particular section when NENA is crafted. And it says, hey, to the extent that you have income from pre-enactment years, pre-2018, we're not going to consider that those items part of your qualified business income. And so loss carryovers or basis limitations or things you could not deduct prior to 2018 that come into play and are deductible in 2018, none of that should apply for purposes of the 199A qualified business income deduction. So right off the bat, you have these amounts that will be subject to the excess business loss 461L won't be subject to, to 199A. And that obviously brings some complexity. If you do take losses this year, you have to parse out these deductions from pre-enactment to say, hey, even though I'm deducting on my 1040 or on my tax return, I can't, I'm excluding them for purposes of my computation for 99A. And if some of these amounts are deferred under the excess business loss rules, then you have to say, okay, how much of my excess business loss that's carried over under NOL relates to pre-enactment deductions? So you're talking about allocations and apportionments and parsing deductions that are very complicated. So what you know, what do we have in guidance in 199A? It goes back to, again, the notion of you know, what is a loss and is it impacting my income? So with the regulations say, hey, look, 461L makes any deduction, any loss, not deductible. So therefore, if it was not deductible this year, then it was not used in calculating your qualified business income. Therefore, if you have excess business loss that gets carried over as NOL, that NOL can reduce your qualified business income because it has never affected it before and we need that loss to affect your qualified business income in the year that the NOL is utilized. So we do know the excess business loss must affect qualified business income. So now I'm going to bring another you know, torturous thing is that there's some businesses that are qualified for qualified business income deduction and some businesses that don't. So logically, you can have losses from non-qualified businesses, you know, service type businesses that do not, cannot get a deduction and you can have losses from qualified businesses that do give you a 199A deduction. So here you have a situation where you have excess business loss and you're going to now need to parse through your excess business loss to figure out what is the portion of the loss that when allowed next year as an NOL will be qualified business and what will not be. So you're parsing out pre-enactment losses and you're parsing qualified and non-qualified losses. So it seems quite complicated, but that's what you'll need to do. A great, great deal of measuring what is your loss, what the loss comes from? Is it a qualified business loss? Is it a non-qualified loss? A loss from specified service businesses? And then you need to figure out what portion is allowed because you have 250000 or 500000 threshold. What's the portion that's not allowed? And you know, to make things very complicated, and this is 
where going back to your question about guidance, there may be guidance that says, you know, what is the order of this? How do you actually compute what is your, your qualified business loss that gets reduced? What is the mechanism for this to actually get calculated and computed? That might be what guidance can come out with. And so it sounds like there's going to be a lot of record keeping, a lot of keeping track and, and tracing earlier expenses and losses and trying to figure out. Let me be really clear that what the regulations also have is, and I'm not trying to paint the worst picture possible, but this is how the regulations on 190A work is, again, I'm trying to derive what is my qualified business income and when does this excess business loss come into play? Let's say the loss is used against qualified business income and I have a qualified business loss. And very simplistically, each business is tracked individually, unless you make an aggregation election that has certain requirements to be met. But the point is, is that each qualified business will be aggregated. The wages will be aggregated for that particular business. And so if you have, a, if you have losses, these losses offset you know, positive qualified business income. If you have an excess loss, again, a net qualified business loss for 198 purposes, that gets carried over to the future. So a taxpayer will not only have to figure out how the excess business losses get used in computing qualified business income, if there's an overall loss, that overall loss under 199A, the qualified business loss, only from qualified business, that gets carried over to future years solely for purposes of section 199A, and that is a separate business loss. It's not tracked by business, but it's treated as one separate business. So you'll have, in effect, a 461L NOL, you have the regular NOL, you have the excess business loss attributes that you can deduct against qualified business income, and you're going to have a qualified business loss carryover. So it seems quite complicated. Yeah. And uh, I guess to to add to this complication, we also have to think about the interest expense limitations under uh, 163J. Uh, so uh, how does that factor in? Right. This is a you know, excellent issue as well, because this is where I started my foray into how does a person calculate a limitation? And this limitation was already in the code, but it got expanded to non-corporate taxpayers in the new tax law. And in a nutshell, it says, you know, take 30% of your adjusted taxable income and compare it to your business interest expense and your business interest income. And that's a limitation, basically a cap, again, on, on your business interest expense. So the use of this adjusted taxable income, the code says, make adjustments to your taxable income. And so the thought is, is, well, where do you start? If you start taxable income, okay, that must mean that you must follow all of the other rules we've discussed, the 465 at risk, the past loss rules. Sounds like we need to do the excess business loss rules too, but we're trying to figure out our, our 163J business interest. And here, you know, the statute says when you're doing your business 163J limitation, this deduction goes before this calculation. This limitation takes place before other limitations, before the limitation for at risk, before the limitation of, of passive activity limitation. So but again, we're starting with tax taxable income, which is after all of this. So you can see here, it's hard to work your way through it. So let me try to explain how I understand it to be, is you calculate your, your taxable income on a pro forma basis. And you follow the statute and it says, the statute says, deduct all of your business interest in calculating your taxable income and then make adjustments. So the first step is to create a you know hypothetical. What are my passive loss limitations if I can deduct my, all my business interest? What is my at-risk limitations if I can deduct all my business? interest and come up with a taxable income. And then you make these adjustments. I keep repeating the adjustments. What are these adjustments? Well, you basically have to back out spe specified items like your non-business 
income or loss. So investment gains and losses are backed out. You back out you know, NOLs and you back out depreciation. That you know, Backing out means you're increasing here, which is a good thing. You want a large taxable income so you can get more deduction. So you back out your depreciation from you know, trader businesses, which inflates your taxable income. And then for partnerships, it's a whole different set of rules, which we can get into. But point is that once you calculate this adjusted taxable income, you take 30% of it, and that becomes kind of your cap for your business interest. And so once you've completed your limitation on business interest, you then start to apply your 465 at risk, you apply your 469 rules, and then you go do your return in earnest. So this is a preliminary, you know, sidestep to get you just to one number. What is your business interest deduction? And so, you know, the people that wrote the regs spent a lot of time on this, but, you know, I think the concern I have with current state of affairs is that the form, I think, was written just around the same time the regs were written, and it's not, they're not particularly clear, and the regulations are much clearer than the form is. And the people, I think, maybe barging into this form, not quite understanding how it all is supposed to work because the form is, you know, part in it. They're not well drafted, especially in the partnership area. But the excess business loss comes into play in that, you know, if you have an add back because you cannot deduct your losses, well, that will be part of your taxable income. So that's a good thing. You want your losses disallowed because that will increase your deduction for business interest. Again, this is a pro forma calculation just to compute your business interest expense. So how do these rules affect partnerships? Yeah, the business interest expense for partnerships you know, takes a two tracks. It, and the important thing I think that people need to understand is that for the first time now, partnerships are treated as entities and they have their own entity level limitation as opposed to everything flowing down to the partner and let the partner figure it out at their level of the limitation. So here the, the 163J says partnerships that, that are subject to the rules and will need to calculate their interest and any interest that can't be deducted is treated as excess business interest expense and reported to the partner and the partner then will deduct it in the future whenever that partnership has excess taxable income. So there are, however, in the regulations, you know, they address the situations where partnerships are exempt and they're exempt because they don't have enough gross receipts. Gross receipts being you know, part of you know, section 448C, you know, are you eligible for the cash basis of accounting? And that's where they got it from. They use 25 million as the threshold. So if partnerships don't have gross receipts of $25 million and they're not a tax shelter, which I can get into, but they they don't need to apply these rules. And the way the regulations are written, it says, oh, if the partnership is exempt, then everything is subject to the limitation at the partner level if the partner is subject to these rules. So it's a double dip for the government here. The partnership may be exempt, but they're saying that it should be passed through. So it is interesting that they treat some partnerships as being subject and a limitation takes place. But if the partnership is small, less you know, small meaning gross receipts, the partner still needs to follow the rules. And that it seems to be something that was added by the regulations, not quite clear in the statute, and it will require all partnerships that have a business to go through these computations to tell their partners, hey, here's business income because you need to use this our business income for purposes of your calculation. And by the way, every partnership will need to report its gross receipts to the partners for them to add up all of their gross receipts to see if they have more than $25 million. And that's, I think, a huge burden on most partnerships that don't have business interest to go through the 
mechanics of calculating the gross receipts, reporting them, calculating the business income. So that's, I think, is something that will ultimately impact the partner. And if they're subject to these rules, they'll have to apply the exact same limitations. It will affect their business loss. And one thing really important to mention on this is that if the partnership is exempt from the rules, the regulations say, hey, don't deduct your business interest expense. Report it on a footnote and tell the partner to go figure it out themselves. So I don't think most practitioners are thinking about the fact that there's going to be some deductions that are buried into you know, volume 20 of the K-1 that they should be claiming on their tax return. So it may be something that be overlooked. But again, if the practitioners aren't fully aware of the rules and the rules aren't that clear on the forms, maybe some of this might get missed. Well, it sounds like there's going to be a lot to work through uh, in this filing season. Richard, thank you for being here. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, the opportunity. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Noel Brock, Roy Clemens, and Adam Nowak devise a new way to measure corporate tax avoidance. And Dashiell Shapiro discusses a taxpayer win against the IRS involving a stopple in IRS audit determinations. In state tax notes, Dan Bucks argues that states should adopt worldwide unitary combined reporting in order to tax corporate income more effectively. And Alyssa McLaughlin and Kathleen Quinn examine the problems with New Jersey's allocation of guilty and fitty. And in Tax Notes International, a group of practitioners from Asia-Pacific's leading tax advisors discuss how Singapore investment funds structure their investments into Australia, China, Japan, and South Korea. And a tax professor examines the EU and OECD's perspectives on recent changes to international tax dispute mechanisms. You can read all that and a lot more in the February 25th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.